This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the haunting of Bly Manor. So this is the last episode of our spooky edition Halloween episodes, um, and I'm really happy that I got to do another sit down with Becca to talk about the second installment in the haunting series. Um, so sit back and enjoy this pretty intensive discussion about the show, all of the fun ghosts, um, and a lot of the deeper psychological and relational themes um, that we really enjoyed in the series. So I hope that you enjoy. All right, so we are back this week with Becca to discuss the second installment in the Haunting franchise, if you will, uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is another Mike Flanagan production. Um, So in this one, we are centered around another house, uh, Bly Manor, uh, whereas the first one was centered on Hell House, Hill <laughs> Hill House. Um, so in this one, we center around a, a, an American woman who is hired to work as an au pair for a British family. So although our, our main character is American, this is taking place in um, the UK. She is hired to, to be this au pair for these two children. It's insinuated that... Um, these children need a little extra support because their parents have passed away in an accident. Um, and they're quite young. I believe it's like a nine and five-year-old little girls, pretty, pretty young. Um, and the woman who plays Danny, our main character also played Nell, um, in the first episode. And we find out that Danny is being haunted by this dark figure with glowing eyes, um, and so this is why she's in the UK. She's running away from whatever is haunting her. Um, when we get to the house, she meets the rest of the staff. The children are there with um, the housekeeper, Hannah, who basically is their mother <laughs> because there's nobody there to look after them. They're also um, with Owen, who is uh, like the the cook, baker, all around kitchen man. Um, and then Jamie is the gardener um so the the, these three adults are kind of like in charge and although the children are under the care of their uncle who is played by um Henry Thomas who was in Hill House uh he never comes to see them he is only seen in the city in his office and so the children are basically under the care of these adults um and just as in Hill House we come to find out the Bly Manor Bly Manor has a series of very distressing ghosts <laughs> and situations, um, which ultimately concludes in one of the most tragic uh, love stories between Danny and Jamie, where the two women are finally able to fall in love, uh, you know, and be together. But we find out that Danny, after defeating the main ghost <laughs> of Bly Manor, actually has this this a presence of spirit trapped inside of her and one day it will wake up and it will kill her and so the couple is kind of waiting out their time um, until that day happens um, which just results in just horrible emotional <laughs> turmoil um, but in between 
Danny arriving at the manor and and being murdered by a ghost. Uh, lots of spooky stuff happens that I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, but yeah, before we dive more into our research and stuff, I just will throw it again back to you, Becca. What first thoughts? Bly Manor is. I see a lot of parallels between Bly Manor and the Haunting of Hill House, but the dynamic between the cast of characters we see is so much different because they're not family members. I mean, we have the uncle and we have his two, the niece and the nephew, um, but even their dynamic is much different than like we saw between Nell and Luke, who are the twins in Hill House. Um, they just, they bring, each character brings their own, their own wants and motivations and fears to Bly Manor. Um, even though they all should really be <laughs> united to uh, help these children <laughs> prosper and grow up and be safe and protected in this mm-hmm. um, horrible uh, post-parent life that they both have. Um, as we'll get into later, I'm sure both children lost their parents at the same time while they were out of country. Mm-hmm. So there's probably this horrible disconnect between the children, the familiarity of the staff of Bly Manor, the familiarity of Bly Manor itself, but then just this big gaping absence of where mm-hmm. their parents should be, but will no longer exist. With that said, I really enjoyed Bly Manor for the different points of view that we were given, um, mm-hmm. for seeing how everything kind of fit into one another. Um, in Hill House, we didn't get to learn a lot about the hauntings themselves. The ghosts, I mean, we got some information from Poppy, but we're not sure if she was really a reliable narrator. (laughs) Well, not narrator, but a reliable character, essentially. A reliable historian. Yeah, a reliable historian. There you go. Um, But we get to see... um, We get to see a little bit more about what made the house, the manor, as awful as it is today. And really the driving force of it, who is the former matriarch of the manor, uh, Viola. Um, who in Haunting of Hill House portrayed uh, Theo, the mm. sister with the clairvoyance via touch. So it's just, I mean, it's, it's, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really enjoying Mike Flanagan's work. Uh, I look forward. I, I really enjoyed Midnight Mass um, as we're recording this in 2021. I really enjoyed Midnight Mass. Uh, I need to sit down and watch Hush and yes. Gerald's Game. I think Gerald's Game. I don't think that's one I really want to watch alone. It's one that I had a hard time rating. So we'll see how watching it goes. Yeah, I really enjoy Gerald's game, but it's very unsettling. Um, but yeah, I think I think Bly Manor really, we get to see, and Mike Flanagan had like directed and, and produced a lot of stuff before Bly Manor came out. But I feel like we really are kind of seeing him settle into what I think is, is going to be his reputation in the horror the horror <laughs> the horror world which is like it's the emotion it's the interpersonal it's it's not necessarily the supernatural but it is what people can do to each other that is so scary but also can be sort of like your last lifeline in a supernatural <laughs> situation and Bly Manor I think really does this so well with all of the relationships being played out um whether they're toxic (laughs) 
or not. Um, and so I, I feel like this is kind of, I see this as Mike Flanagan kind of stepping into like, all right, I've been doing like traditional horror stuff, but now I'm going to really show you uh, what I can, what I can do. And I think he, I think they, the cast and everybody pulled this off really well. Um, so obviously similarities to Hill House, it's centered around a place, right? This is centered around Bly Manor. Um, the, there is still like, I, I would say that Bly Manor is more about like chosen family, which makes sense because we do have a queer love story at, kind of at the center. It's more about chosen family, but it's still like, so in an essence, still about family where, you know, Hill House was about family. Um, but what I like about Bly Manor is that in Hill House, it was love that was perverted to, you know, harm people. And in Bly Manor, it is love that conquers, even if for just a time, um, like the evil of the house. That it's like the house cannot, like, like there was so much love there, whether it was between the the parents of the children, um, between Danny and Jamie, between Owen and Hannah, um there is so much love there that it like kind of overpowers <laughs> this entity maybe it's because it's not in america <laughs> it's not built on a massive graveyard of indigenous people i don't know <laughs> um but yeah i think i i think i liked the like there was something so unsettling in, in the first one about like olivia killing her children and in this one you know, there are relationships that are exploited, but it's made very clear that there isn't love there, right? That, like, if you exploit or harm somebody, you you don't truly love them, um, whereas Hill House kind of, like, muddled that message. So I think that's what really stands out for me is even just the way that, like, love is treated in in this. It's more of a gothic tragedy than it is a spooky, scary movie. <laughs> I agree in that Bly Manor is similar to Hill House in that they are both centered around a location, Though I think a big sticking point about Bly Manor is that the only reason we revisit the manor or that the we are as the audience visiting the manor is because of the horrors that Viola, the original matriarch, kind of wrought upon herself and her family. Mm. And it's that magnetism that her tragedy has Mm -hmm. that creates this like, not portal, but this force that inherently trap souls around it and in calling back to your point about how blind manor represents love um, in the flashback episode with viola when we learn about her and her existence and her ultimate death we see her sitting with her child saying this phrase it's you it's me it's us Mm -hmm. we later see peter repeat that phrase i'm not sure where peter picks it up from but we see peter repeat that phrase to miles the young boy Mm -hmm. when he's trying to explain to miles this is how we play this game Mm -hmm. this is how you will allow me to inhabit your body so i can move about and ultimately we see this phrase again when danny is Mm -hmm. addressing viola aka the lady of the lake as Viola is dragging the little girl Flora into the lake. And instead of Danny, instead of allowing her to take just another soul, invites Viola to be a part of her, to be a part of a living being by intoning, it's you, it's me, it's us. And that may be calling back to Viola's time with her daughter. Hearing that phrase is letting her know uh, not only you have you have my consent 
um, to you have my consent to be a part of me. Um, but uh, I want you to be mm-hmm. a part of me. Right. Which again, you know, it's, it's kind of sad. The thought of, of a, however many year, hundreds of years old ghost saying, Oh, you love me. And then the curse lifting off the manor, but <laughs> it's, you know, after years and years and years of losing herself and losing her memories, this one phrase really triggers this inherent want in her to be Mm. a part of whomever uttered that. And that's, I think that's really beautiful. It's, it's not something that I caught on the first time around. That's for sure. Um, But it's like a, it's a rule that Viola in a way installed in the curse that she brought upon the manor and somehow the ghosts, at least Peter knows it. I'm not sure how Peter knows it. Uh, yeah, I to find out. I, I would guess that. So I guess to kind of center Viola's like power <laughs> over the manor, we don't find out until the second to last episode of the series where the lady in the lake comes from. So throughout the series, you see this like basically faceless woman in a white dress dripping wet and she walks into the house. She always walks the same path into the house to one of the bedrooms. And then she walks back. And as the audience, we come to find out that if you are in the way of her path, she will latch onto you and she cannot let go. And so she will inevitably drag you back to the lake with her and drown you in the lake. Although it seems like she kills you in the house. Before. I don't know. It just, you die eventually. <laughs> and it's it's her sort of like, unending perseveration on this grief on this event that happened to her and so in the flashback episode we learned that she she um and her sister were kind of like they inherited this house because they were the only children of the family uh they were like these kind of like badass feminist women like they didn't need a man until they needed a man (laughs) because they needed money to keep up this house and so i believe she marries a man with wealth but he falls in love with her sister um and then and viola like gets some sort of illness it's like some sort of old-timey consumptive <laughs> wasting very, like, disease tb yeah tuberculosis but yeah it's not necessarily described as such so yeah she's definitely coughing up blood and it's supposed to be like she gets sick she had been this very strong powerful woman who was running this household but she gets sick and she begins to waste away and her sister is basically like okay let go <laughs> like you know you've lived you lived a good life i'm sorry you're sick but i will take care of your daughter um but she refuses to die because she does not want her husband and her sister to get together because she becomes very paranoid that the second she dies they will get together which is probably true um and you know also for logistics because her sister wouldn't have any money (laughs) anymore um so this woman hangs on for like years like just clinging to life she's like barely a person anymore um what happens next i always forget that she kills her she kills the um, sister right just before she dies she um has all of her uh finery packed away and has her husband promise that they won't open that chest of finery until her daughter is old enough because it is intended for her daughter um viola then passes away and at one point you know maybe with viola's passing the house starts to go into the red 
um, the estate starts to lose money. The uh, Viola's sister, now the new wife to the husband, um, decides it's time to open the trunk. We're going to sell some of these dresses. Viola's not here anymore. It's not important. Um, But we see her open the trunk and we see a dress snap out and strangle her to death. Yes. And upon finding his new wife um, dead at the base of this chest, the husband has the chest thrown into the lake and they leave the house. They leave the manor. Right. And so that's how Viola ends up into the lake. So Mm -hmm. truly it was like that her spirit was, it was almost like her spirit was attached to these items that she was leaving for her daughter. So I think that's another thing where it differs from Hill House where it's like, the original like energy tied to this place was intended to be a positive energy because it was like, you know, staying behind for her daughter, but because of like the paranoia and the just like bitterness of Viola's life before she died, her, her energy manifested into this like revenge against her sister. But it's like, to be honest, it probably was more helpful for for her daughter if they sold those clothes and had money to eat (laughs) rather than saving them for, when she turned 18 or whatever but so we see this like it's starting to trend in the same direction of like this this like kind of negative energy is now starting to kill people in the house um but to be fair at first I thought the husband was kind of stupid I was like just sell all those clothes who cares that your new wife is dead but he probably cares (laughs) um and by him throwing the trunk in the lake he kind of like dooms the lake to you know, have this negative energy. And so what happens is Viola's spirit will leave the lake every night and walk to her daughter's bedroom because by them moving out of the house, her spirit can no longer be close to her daughter. And so she, it's like, she really doesn't know what happened to her daughter because once you step off the property of the manor, Viola doesn't know what's happening to you. It's not like Hill House where the energies seem to be able to follow you out to the world. She is really constrained to the house. Um, so all that to say, because every night she walks to the back of the house to her daughter's bedroom, anybody gets in her way, they get snatched and drowned. Um, and so I think when she drowns you and takes you to the lake with her, she's sort of like integrating you into herself, right? Like Viola's personality is all consuming, even when she was alive, right? She overshadowed her husband. She overshadowed her sister. She probably would have overshadowed her daughter when she got into adolescence and was like, no, nope, you're going to listen to me. <laughs> and so if you get sucked into the lake, with Viola, you cease to exist. And mm-hmm. you are you are you, but now you're me and us with Viola. So I, that's all all of that. <laughs> to say I think that's where Peter um kind of gets that phrase. And I think it's part of the it's it's something you could argue is part of the unconscious uh sub unconscious collect collective unconscious, right? Of like maybe because Viola has introduced this phrase to the audience, now we're able to identify it in other people now that we're conscious of it. But that's, that's my Jungian <laughs> argument. No, no, that's a great point. It makes sense too that they've um, <clears throat> all of the lives that have been lost on the grounds of Bly Manor are then trapped um, in this purgatory afterlife situation uh, by Viola's just power. This power that she somehow created in her death or undeath, I guess. Um, it would make sense that they would have this, not necessarily hive mind, but they would have this shared 
knowledge. They know that they can't leave the grounds. They know um, certain things. I wonder if the ghosts, well, the ghosts aren't concerned about the lady, but like we see um, there's a little boy that Flora meets in the basement, um, kind of huddled among this very creepy collection of dolls. (laughs) down there which have no business being there um but she meets this little boy who obviously has been in the manor for quite some time because his face is all but gone which we learn is uh, a symptom of a ghost being on the premises for too long is that they lose themselves and they lose their faces um anyway we later see the little boy is apparently um overseeing watch (laughs) on all of the people and the entities within Bly Manor. Uh, This is represented by a dollhouse that Flora keeps in her room. Mm -hmm. And we see that the little faceless boy is the one manipulating the dolls and placing them where they need to be. And if that's just all of the spirits in the home on the manor grounds, sharing their sight and their knowledge at one time, um, or if that's just uh, Viola knowing simply because of her authority over all of them that she can pinpoint where they are and that reverberates back to the faceless boy. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, I keep saying the phrase, but this idea of something in that house is creating an all-knowing entity is really terrifying. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that's why the ghosts are, there's never multiple ghosts in one room because they all know. <laughs> Mm. I've I got shift in the hallway at this point in this time, and that's why almost every single frame in the show there's something hidden in the background. Yes, yes. So this one is very subtly spooky. <laughs> if you haven't, if you haven't been looking for it uh, when you watch the show, I highly recommend you watch the background. Yeah, because it's terrifying. There are some, there are some hard to see ones, but there are other ones that it's just it's a person standing directly yeah. behind another person and uh, that shouldn't be as scary as it sounds but believe me it's <laughs> terrifying and I think also that that experience of um you know there just being things in the background that maybe you as the audience aren't aware of if you're not looking for it I think kind of is is a look at what it's like to be trapped in Viola's world of like she has she does not notice anyone like she is single-minded on her daughter like we we basically realize that the longer she's been in the lake she doesn't even think about her husband and her sister anymore it's just single track I need my daughter back and when she gets to the bedroom every night she realizes her daughter is gone and so she goes back to the lake because it's like well if my daughter's not here then I might as well die right it's like she re-drowns herself every night and so if you're any other entity in that house you're there because you got caught in Viola's hand and that's so, a good point of yeah. course she doesn't pay attention to you she mm-hmm. may be aware of you but she doesn't pay attention to you and if you're those ghosts you're like okay the last time i crossed paths with her something very horrible happened so i'm just gonna <laughs> always be in the background <laughs> i don't mean to jump ahead at all but i think of the first time we witness her take someone mm-hmm. um peter is in the middle of yelling at i believe it's miles yeah, And we see very suddenly the shape of the faceless woman's face appear through the darkness. And then a hand just wraps around Peter's throat. And the actor is quite tall. Yeah. <laughs> but we see this woman 
just snatch him by the throat and drive him down to the floor almost parallel to the ground and just single arm dragged him away with her and at one point either he suffocates or she breaks his neck and peter reappears and watches her drag him down to the lake yes which if that is your if that is the way that you meet viola i'm i'm sure you go okay all right (laughs) you know that she is maybe of a similar like you may be of this of a similar plane like you may be able to interact with her but she probably has these this ungodly just um aura about her of this single like you said the single-minded um mission-oriented um seek and find kind of thing yeah um, that is just incredibly unnerving and um, terrifying especially seeing how well she handles how quickly not well but how quickly she <laughs> handles uh the mortals who get in her way yeah yeah and there's like a yeah i think we could really talk about this as like a symbolism of kind of like when you erase identity right when you erase when you don't see people for like the things that make them individuals, you know, that like that they, they have their own desires and, and wants and needs. Yours are not the only ones that are important, right? You do so much damage when you're only focused on your own desires. Now it is interesting because Peter in the same way is an incredibly selfish character. Um, and we come to find out that he's a, he's a bit of a rake <laughs> as the Brits would say, <laughs> he's a bit of a, a bad boy, He's like trying to, um, I believe he's trying to steal some money from the kids. Like he believes the kids' money should go to him. Um, and remind me, I I did not rewatch the show before we <laughs> did this. How is Peter related to the family? He just worked for the uncle. So yes, so Peter Peter works for the uncle, whom, as we've discussed, um, wants absolutely nothing to do with the kids after yes. the death of their parents. Um, and I believe Peter is motivated to steal from the family in a secretive way uh, because he's receiving pressure from his mother right. to collect money. And I'm not sure if it's retribution against the family itself or if it's the mother saying, you, Peter, owe me. If you can't find me the money, why don't you just leech off of your incredibly powerful um i have i i I believe that it's the mom who says why don't you just steal from those black kids uh yeah (laughs) because she's truly awful yes Um, she's she's the end all be all bad moms (laughs) yeah so it's it's really uh it's difficult because we don't learn that about peter until later on Uh, and every interaction that especially like we see danny interact with peter and Peter just gives off these really suspicious, dangerous vibes, and you can't really quite put a finger to it. Um, but it's not until we really get into his backstory that there's a little bit of an understanding there. Personally, I wouldn't say any sympathy, especially given what he does to Rebecca. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that. Yes, 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 yes. Ooh, Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter's a bad boy. <laughs> um, all this is a like, I think Peter is the most similar to Viola of the ghosts because he 
has the most like single-minded focus as well. Like he's so focused on money and he'll do whatever it takes, whether it means harming children emotionally <laughs> and sometimes physically, like harming uh, someone who loves him. And, and Peter's relationship with Rebecca, which is the, um, so she was like the first nanny <laughs> who, um, so Danny arrives after Rebecca's alleged suicide so it's just like another trauma on top of what these kids have gone through because and everybody loved Rebecca like she was like the perfect nanny um and then she kills her she allegedly kills herself (laughs) and it's like another horrible thing has happened to these children um and so Danny has like these really big shoes to fill but Peter Mm -hmm. and Rebecca were like romantically involved and I thought the show did a really good job of showing like um basically how like gaslighting <laughs> works in a relationship because I mean Peter is just like king of gaslighting that woman <laughs> I agree I think it's there are I think most of Peter's scenes with her made me incredibly uncomfortable she's mm-hmm. she's so starry-eyed for him and like oh he's he's so interesting with his accent and um he's so worldly and they they initially bond over this idea that they both come from money but the in my opinion but the work that they're currently doing so the work that they're doing either um, at or tangentially involved with Bly Manor and the family is quote-unquote beneath them because they're accustomed to this standard of living Mm -hmm. Uh, and we see that when in an incredibly uncomfortable scene uh, we see that when Peter takes Rebecca upstairs to the master suite um again the deceased parents of miles and flora and they fool around on the bed and um i believe peter tries to put jewelry on rebecca from like the dead the dead mom's like fur coat and jewelry just 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 absolutely and they're taking photos just absolutely disrespecting this home disrespecting the memory of these people and just disrespecting these things which more than likely haven't been divided up yet because the uncle has been hands off this whole time mm-hmm. and he's like ah, i'll give it the summer <laughs> i'll come back later <laughs> and deal with it um yeah. and it's it's i think it's meant in the moment in recalling it it may seem kind of sweet but then we have reality kick in the door in the form of hannah <laughs> the queen. housekeeper kind of um stand-in mother yeah, uh, I would say matriarch of the home. The, the matriarch of the home at this point, she really, she mothers everyone she comes across in the most well-meaning way. Um, but she comes in the room to see what she sees and she's quick to let them know she's incredibly disappointed mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they should think about their actions. And that's really as intense as it gets. Um, there's no screaming or yelling or accusing it's just incredibly uncomfortable for everyone involved. And that's just, I think that's just the effect that Peter has on Rebecca is he has this ability to make her feel like these things are okay. Right. Like, oh, this is okay because he said it is or because he's leading me into it. Right. Um, And for some reason, I trust him and I (laughs) have feelings for him. Um, Even though he sucks. (laughs) Which, you know, you can't, I think it's incredibly difficult to pinpoint why some people fall for others 
Um, True. Because we see like Danny is immediately repulsed by Peter. Yeah. Um, not even intrigued by this handsome man standing on the balcony. Uh, she is scared. Yeah, Who she's like, stranger? get out of here. She's ready yeah, to get fight. Out of here. <laughs> yeah, she's ready to go for him. Um, all five foot of her. Um, but it's it's just the strange hold that he that Peter seems to have over Rebecca in that it's yes, like you said, king of gaslighting. Um, he's very quick to tell her how beautiful he is and how wonderful America will be, mm-hmm. and um, how much success that they'll find. And he just has to get this money so they can go. Um, and she'll no longer have to be a nanny to these awful children who really aren't, they're not awful. They're They're just sad little British children. They are. They really are. And he's just, I don't know if we want to get into it, but he's literally the cause of her downfall. Yes. Yeah. And so before we get into her death. (laughs) (laughs) Her alleged suicide. Her alleged suicide, as I will maintain. Um, So like, you know, because because a lot of the the themes of Blind Manor come back to like you know different types of love, different you know different different ways that people love each other. Like Rebecca, like you said, Rebecca kind of gets sucked into Peter's dis- like trash basically, and she kind of lets herself, you know, maybe make decisions she wouldn't have made before because he's allowing it. And I think that's a really good representation of like when you don't have good boundaries in a relationship and you don't know yourself. Um, like, cause I think Rebecca is presented as like, she's very nice. She cares for the children. Like she's very good at her job, but she doesn't really know who she is or what she really wants to do. And, and I believe like she wanted to become a lawyer. Right. And she's, she's like, she took this job because she wanted to get, she was trying to get connected to the uncle to become a lawyer, but she, she isn't quite able to take that step and advocate for herself. She's like kind of, she's right. very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah, she's not she hasn't quite found that that voice to really step in and say hey yeah right but we do see that and so, so peter like he's basically a lost cause right like he's not able to love in in a healthy way his love is very selfish even after death though he still is scheming about ways to like escape and it's like bro <laughs> you're a ghost dude oh. like <laughs> I do, I do feel, and I think the one phrase that we may not have used for Peter yet, um, excluding oh. trash, which I was <laughs> interesting, interesting to hear. Um, I think Peter is a con man. Yes. And maybe he was that way before he got into Uncle Henry's business. Maybe that's how he got into Uncle Henry's business. Um, but he just has that air of, um, I am above all of you i am not a part of any of this even though i'm always here uh (laughs) um and you know that's the same thing that he does with rebecca is he kind of sweeps her off her feet in a way and says you don't have to be a part of any of this you don't have to deal with hide and seek with children you don't have to deliver arithmetic lessons you can come with me to america and you can wear fur and find jewelry like we found in the Bly master bedroom and you can all of these fantasies that you have you can realize if you come with me and do as I say exactly um whereas like Peter's ability to love is not there right because he's just manipulating her um but Rebecca we see uh that that she's redeemable so basically what happens with Rebecca is so Peter's a ghost now (laughs) 
and and one thing that's pretty consistent in this show is that when people first get turned into ghosts they they really have trouble dealing with it like mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the major pl- plot points with hannah which we'll, we'll discuss <laughs> i'm sure at length um but like P- peter's really trying to get a hang of like i'm a ghost <laughs> <laughs> like, but I'm like sometimes like try how to make himself visible to others and and he's not able to manipulate the physical world but he is able to like appear and so everyone thinks that he just ran away and abandoned Rebecca mm-hmm. and so and so she's like devastated she like can't get out of bed and then he's able to appear to her and he's like hey guess what I'm actually at the bottom of the lake <laughs> I'm hella dead um but guess what <laughs> we can be together if you let me possess you so he's mm-hmm. he as we've discussed somehow learns this phrase it's you it's me it's us he tells her if you say that you invite me in i can possess you and and then i can like ride you <laughs> off of the property but what mm-hmm. he ends up doing ultimately is he he comes into her body possesses her and drives her into the lake to drown her so that they can be together forever so mm-hmm. that's why i say alleged suicide because <laughs> Obviously, it looks like she just dove into the lake, but what really happens is that Peter drives her into the lake because if he can't be free, he's so selfish that he must consume, he must own everything in his path, and so he will trap Rebecca with him mm-hmm. in this place, and they will be ghosts together because he's he's also like very sexually obsessed with her. It's it's his obsession with her is very odd. It's like sexual, but it's emotional. He's very possessive. Um, and it, I, they really manifest it in that he literally possesses her and forces her to die. <laughs> Which is an awful scene. I remember yeah. the first time watching it when she, the moment she dies and Rebecca appears as a ghost beside the lake, watching herself drown, or I guess sink. Float down, yeah. <laughs> and just this, the way that the actress really cries out is not it's not just a oh no what happened it's it feels so much more as an as an audience member you realize she's lost everything um this trajectory that she was on in her career these hopes that she had making this connection with uncle henry um yeah you know this her entire life has just forcibly been taken away from her and as we learn later with flora um, I believe it's Flora, explains that when you are being possessed by a ghost, you go away in your own mind. You go away into a memory. So Rebecca very well may have been living in a pleasant memory of her and Peter moments before she died, only to be snapped back into this weird version of reality, watching herself die and realizing the severity of her situation that she just learned from Peter. I can't leave the grounds. I can't touch anything. I can't touch you. And I will um, fade. And I will eventually fade. So the, it's just like a dual slap of this is now your new reality. Welcome yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, I think for anyone who's maybe experienced a borderline emotionally abusive relationship, I, I think that scene with Rebecca really hits very hard too of like, I think it's there's a pull to like blame yourself of like if I had done something different you know maybe I wouldn't be here if I hadn't if I hadn't listened to him if I hadn't you know given him permission um but it's like it doesn't matter Peter would have 
you know, possessed Miles and dragged her into the lake. Like, you know, Peter is going to do what Peter is going to do, regardless of, of whether you invited him into your life or not. Um, but but Rebecca, after she becomes a ghost, they hatch some sort of cockamamie scheme where they're going to possess the children and like take all the money or what. It really doesn't matter. It's it's very silly <laughs> because Peter's so fixated on like he can escape, um, and so he begins to possess Miles. And Rebecca is supposed to possess Flora so they can run off into the sunset together as siblings, which is like, that's so weird. Um, but anyway, the, the the ultimate plan for Peter is like, they're going to kill everyone and, and take off with the children. And at the last minute, Rebecca like refuses to possess Flora and like to go along with his plan. And I think that is actually so powerful. Like it doesn't, I mean, obviously in real life, if you die, you're dead, but it doesn't matter like how far an abusive relationship has gone there is still hope that you can like get out of it and you can change your circumstance. And sometimes you need support from other people. And sometimes you need to make the realization that like this relationship is not serving you. Um, but also that you're not to blame the, and that, that, you know, no matter what you think you have done, there is an opportunity for you to turn it around and make a different choice. So I liked that that was Rebecca's story was that at the end, she, she does find her voice. Unfortunately, she's a ghost. (laughs) But she, but she kind of found herself um, in this process and was able to kind of get out from underneath Peter. I think that's a really beautiful point. And I mean, it's very final, that decision, when she says, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And we see Peter immediately, like you might see an abuser, when their spouse says, okay, I'm leaving. We see Peter as the abuser absolutely spiral. Um, as you mentioned, he starts possessing Miles more often. Uh, we actually see him. He's the one. Peter possessing Miles is the one who pushes Hannah into the well, ending Hannah's life, Mm-mm-mm. which is purely out of anger because it was not uh, the end of an altercation between <laughs> Peter and Hannah or uh, Hannah and Miles. It was Peter seeking her out. Um, and conning her in, oh, I'm Miles, come with me. I need something from you. And taking her life in the same way that he took Rebecca's. This is what I need, and these are the means uh, to that end. Yeah. Because he's a piece of garbage. <laughs> King of gaslighting. <laughs> he has many titles. <laughs> so many. He doesn't deserve. Well, I mean, I he do, deserves those titles. <laughs> I do think the actor did a good job with, I mean, and again, this is the actor who formerly played Luke in Hill House. Yes. So really opposite end of the spectrum here, because I've, I found Luke to be really a sweetheart underneath yeah. the um, unfortunate withdrawal and high symptoms. Um, I think Luke was trying his best. <laughs> yes. Even as a kid with the big old glasses, I think he was really trying. Yeah. Um, Peter is the, not. Peter is not, well, Peter is trying his best to screw everyone else over just to ensure his safety. And like you said, even in his death, he's going to ensure maximum comfort. So if he's not able to leave as Miles and Flora, as he had thought, um, like you said, a total pipe dream. Uh, There's no way that that would have worked out. Um, He just decides, then I'm going to stay here with Rebecca. Yeah, she no, she uh, she can't leave, and I can't leave. So I'm going to make sure that one of those two things is a reality, right? 
so enough about Peter, because I think we, I'm just going to work myself up into a froth about him, <laughs> but you, you introduced the, the tragedy of Hannah's story, which I think for, I think for both of us, because we've talked about this show, obviously offline a lot, for mm-hmm. both of us, Hannah's death is, is one of the most impactful deaths mm-hmm. in the show. Um, but the way that Hannah's story is told is probably one of the most beautiful, like, storytelling, like, masterful <laughs> stories I've ever seen. Um, and essentially, when we meet Hannah, we do not know that she, we actually meet her right as she realizes she is dead. So when Danny meets her, she is leaning over the well where her body is laying. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first few episodes, things continue as normal. We as the audience have no idea that that's what was happening. Yeah. Um, but we we see that Hannah is going through something. She's missing time. She's forgetting conversations that she's had. She We see her like, she, she's like a very beautiful bald woman too, like absolutely gorgeous. And she's always like touching at the back of her head sort of absentmindedly. And she's very fixated on a, a crack that appears in the kitchen that only she seems to be the only one who can see it. And later we realize that she's touching the back of her head because her head was impacted when she fell in the well. And the crack she sees is from the bottom of the well, kind of like the last thing she sees before she dies. So mm-hmm. at first I was like, what is this going to be like? Is this a woman having like on early onset dementia? And she's like, or she's just losing her mind in this like ghost mansion. Like <laughs> it, it was really hard. Um, but then eventually like the, throughout every episode Hannah's story is piecing together until we get to the point where she's she's stuck in a memory loop with where she's interviewing Owen for the first time for the chef's position Mm -hmm. and oh I guess in this place Owen is is not really himself he's like a representation of of himself and he Mm -hmm. helps her to realize that she's dead and that she's a ghost but that she still has a purpose to serve she can't fade she that's that's her time lapse is her being pulled to fade but she can't fade she has to protect the children and it's just like it's just such a masterful storytelling (laughs) there's a great point that i wanted to bring up because i knew we were going to be talking about hannah um there's a great point where owen is rousing everybody together all right guys we're gonna leave Bly manor to go to the parents funeral yeah uh hannah explains to Danny that funerals are for the living and that's why she's not going because Hannah knows she physically can't go yeah and we as the audience don't know right well you know we see other members of staff stay behind obviously we don't get to see that funeral but that is such a moment Mm -hmm. um I think that and whenever we see Hannah in the church there's a Mm -hmm. a is it technically a chapel? There's a little chapel yeah. on the grounds of Bly Manor, which is not really used to the full extent. It could be. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it could be creepier. I, I understand that it's really the house and the lake. Right. Um, it's candle storage, that chapel. <laughs> it's a, it is. It's a safe place for Hannah. It's where Hannah often yeah. goes. And you wonder if that's where Hannah in her death is trying to reconcile these feelings um as we see her piece her story together um if this is where she is finding comfort in this purgatory that she's existing in currently yeah it's like you said it's such a the way that flanagan decided to tell the story is so beautiful and he only would have been able to do it once and i'm so glad he did it with hannah because 
that actress did such a wonderful job with Hannah being, like you said, disoriented, mm-hmm. but in a right mind to be polite. She's always yeah. on point with the way she presents herself. Um, even as a ghost, we see her uh, changing her outfit from day to day. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think, you know, as an audience member in the first watch, it was hard to discern if she was alive or dead because yeah. she was changing her outfits. Um, we saw her going about her normal routine, but as we know, um, in times of great stress, people find comfort in these routines, even if it's swiffering up the mud <laughs> that appears every morning yeah. from the lady of the lake <laughs> doing her business. Um, absolutely beautiful. I, I absolutely adore her story. Yeah. And, and the, another thing that we later find out as a symptom of her being dead (laughs) is she never eats or drinks with the family so they'll sit down for breakfast and she'll just sit and she holds a cup of tea but I noticed pretty early on that she never took a sip from her cup of tea and I was like eating disorder like I was (laughs) I went full (laughs) mental health this woman has an eating disorder like she's trapped in this house with these children like (laughs) were you trying to diagnose her from I was I I know and I should And I know this is why we don't diagnose. But then I was like, okay. And and also there's this like kind of romantic relationship between her and Owen. So I was like, okay, she's going to fall in love with the chef and he's going to introduce her to food and how it's like good and, and good for your body. And oh, So I was ready to go, oh. and all, which would be beautiful. But I, I really liked that, you know, you were in suspense for so long as the audience of like, something is wrong with Hannah, but what is it? And, and mm-hmm. other people are starting to notice because other people are like, you said that yesterday or like, you know, what do you, it's been four hours and you, you haven't gotten to this task or, you know, you're mm-hmm. other people are noticing the time-lapse, noticing that she's not eating. Um, and you're like, what's going to happen? You know, are these people going to help her? <laughs> uh, and then she finds out that it's because uh, Peter as Miles pushed her into a well. And, you know, we, we see Miles kind of carry this guilt throughout the show he's like a nine-year-old boy but he carries this guilt for his involvement with peter and Mm -hmm. and he realizes because when once peter leaves you know stops possessing him miles is very aware of what where he is and what is happening Mm -hmm. and it's like it's so sad that this little boy holds all this guilt and basically blames himself for killing hannah and hannah is like of course it wasn't your fault like (laughs) hannah holds no anger in her heart toward those children she's like Mm -hmm. i think she really is such like the perfect mother figure because she has such unconditional love for those children and and understands implicitly what happened with miles and knows that miles would never do that to her um and also knows how bad peter is hannah's like number one hater of peter which i love (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah all that to say like and I, I think the point that you bring up too about her changing her outfit, like she is seeking comfort in these routines and of like trying not to fade, right? Of like, I'm still here, I'm still me. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting how how the ghosts can interact with some, some ghosts can interact with the physical world. Like Viola leaves wet footprints every time she comes into the house mm-hmm. because her like energy is so potent that she can affect the physical world in that way. And Hannah can hold a cup, but she can't eat you know, and there's, she can't leave. And there's this ambiguity of like, how powerful is her spirit going to be? And is it, it's obviously not powerful in the evil way that Viola is. It's like her, her love for everyone in this house is what's holding her tethered to the world. 
I agree. It's, it's as if it's like her passion for that family is what empowers her even in death um, to stay among them. Because I had seen some musings online that like Rebecca is not able to stay in one place for very long. Mm. Like she's her, her, her quote unquote abilities as a ghost are very limited. Right. Um, we she's wishy washy as a ghost. <laughs> she's very wishy washy. She's yeah. there and then she's gone. Um, we, we see that with, uh, not specifically, but we see that with Viola's sister, uh, the woman who was strangled to death by yeah. Viola's chest of clothes. She apparently just exists in the attic, uh, moaning and groaning. And yeah, kind of like there. hanging out on the floor. <laughs> Yeah, she's just wallowing in misery. Um, she's very physical. She's not like a like a see-through apparition. Right. Um, she makes noise. She's audible. We have a moment of Flora actually shushing her one time, yes. which is terrifying. Um, but we have we see this weird. This, I mean, this this interesting level of like you said these. Uh, in their passing just we're not sure what level these ghosts are going to be at what kind of power they will possess Um, and like you said we see almost from the uh, beginning Hannah Hannah dies and then she has this ability she just returns to her normal routine it's not even we don't see her struggle with it she just jumps back into it yeah and then we see it's really uh, we hear from other members in the house where have you been and we think well we just saw her she went you know she was swiffering the mud like she does every morning (laughs) (laughs) you know we see people questioning her ability or her appearance um where have you been it's been so long you said that yesterday and that's when we really start to doubt uh how stable she is yeah day to day yeah and i think you know kind of going back to we talked about like rebecca not having um like a very strong sense of identity. I think that part of part of how the ghosts manifest is to use a fancy psychology word is is kind of dependent on the people's level of actualization before they died. <laughs> she yeah, threw her hands up. Down. <laughs> <laughs> but but actualization is this word that's used, you know, often usually in like humanistic psychology um, to talk about like we all have this capability capability to become like full people actualized and able to understand our needs, our wants, our desires to individuate between those things um, and to continue to continue to hold like a sense of ego and identity, even in relationships with others and, and, you know, like in a, in a culture Um, and like Rebecca clearly wasn't there. And I almost see it as like, if Rebecca had, you know, been with Hannah for longer than with Peter, (laughs) maybe Rebecca would have actualized in the same way that Hannah seems to have actualized. Cause we also see her reveal, like she has, I think, I think she fled from her husband. Is that why she's, if I'm remembering correctly, there's something with Hannah's husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of why she's like always at the house. Um, Hannah has, has lived through a bad relationship. She was abandoned by her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and has but but because she is actualized because she has this whether it's from the like trauma of that or from what you know we don't know much about hannah 
before that, you know, maybe she had other experiences in her life that really helped her to kind of know herself. Um, but she's able to take a bad situation, you know, being abandoned <laughs> by her husband and turn it into, well, I have a job and a place to live that I love and I can throw myself into this work and, and not necessarily lose herself in the work, but it kind of solidify her identity as like this housekeeper and this person who, who is in these, this family's lives to take care of them and to support them. And, and that's the way that she gets to have her family. Um, and whereas Rebecca is just like, whoever talked to me last is what I'll do. I think that if, you know, Hannah had an opportunity to maybe mentor Rebecca or what, you know, develop that relationship, Rebecca would, um, would be more solid right as a ghost and so I see Hannah as being one of the most solid ghosts because she is so actualized whereas you know Viola is solid in the world but she is faceless because there's nothing left to her besides her blind rage so it's like mm-hmm. it's like actualization like maladaptive actualization <laughs> like she's so set on I'm mad at the world that that's all that's left whereas Hannah is like a whole person and, and that's what's left of her. Which I think is interesting, just that, that phrase, she's a whole person. Um, <laughs> the, a lot of the language directed towards Hannah and about Hannah is very diminutive. Mm. Um, I think, honestly, I think a lot of it comes from Peter. <laughs> Not to Once rag again. on him again, but she's referred to often as just the housekeeper. True. Um, there's a line in there somewhere, it's like, she will always, you know, she'll never fail to go, go back to her routine. Um, as if chastising her for doing her job and doing it well or taking herself seriously in her position at Bly Manor it's kind of like when the parents passed when the staff should strengthen some of the people involved with the with the manor just kind of like well the boss isn't coming in so (laughs) school's out really yeah um but there's so much more to Hannah than as she's described by other people, like we see in her interactions with Owen, we see this, this more fleshed out side of her. We see her in this motherly figure, in this motherly mm-hmm. role uh, as a caretaker, but we also see her really as a woman with romantic interests. We see her express these, the sensitivity to Owen that he accepts and reciprocates immediately, which is great. Um, but there's this tenderness there because there are multiple sides to her. She's not just the mother, like Viola is a mother and full of rage. We see Hannah as the motherly figure who is also full of love to give and seeking love to receive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, I don't, I think, as we mentioned, Peter is very similar to Viola, but Hannah and Viola, I don't think could be more opposite. Yeah. Um, even when Hannah was perhaps at her angriest, seeing Peter and Rebecca mess around in the master bedroom, um, she was still restrained and polite and well-spoken uh, when I think she would have had every right to raise her voice and mm-hmm. kick them out of there. <laughs> yeah. Um, to even maybe lay into Rebecca and say, look, <laughs> as the all pair, this is what is expected of you. And this what you were doing here is not what is expected of you. She stayed true to her character. Yeah. And I think we could probably keep talking about Hannah for 18 hours because we're both 
just like upset not only with the character but with the actress who just did like a phenomenal job with this character but I think Hannah is really if Peter is the king of gaslighting Hannah is the queen of our hearts <laughs> we'll start a secondary podcast called uh, the Hannah hour let's talk about Hannah just one yeah. character forever <laughs> um and and you know in the course of talking about Hannah of course we have to talk about Owen the chef um and Owen and Hannah's relationship although not the primary focus like we don't get as much scenes of them having, you know, maybe more romantic connection. The scenes that we do have with them are, are very like heart wrenching and, and beautiful. And it essentially ends with, um, you know, Hannah letting Owen know, like, I, I can't go with you, you know, and, and Owen realizing, um, that it's over. Um, does he find out that she's dead? Yes. If I remember correctly, yeah, it's, it's, they're having that firelight conversation about yes. going to Paris. And she says, no, I can't, I can't go with you. Yeah. But it's not until later. And I believe Hannah, is it Danny? She's telling someone, like, when Owen finds me, uh, tell him I loved him and tell him that I'm sorry. It's like, even though Hannah may have the ability, we learn later that she wouldn't have been able to, but at the time she may have known that she would have had the ability to appear before Owen or maybe even take Owen to her body. But yeah. maybe she knew it was going to be awful because as we saw her standing over the well and seeing herself down there was awful. I'm sure mm. it was, it was awful. And she can't imagine Maybe she doesn't want to witness somebody else seeing that. Maybe she doesn't want to see Owen seeing that. So she's going to very gently pass that responsibility on. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Owen does learn that she died. And I believe he I believe he dedicates his Parisian yes. restaurant. Yeah, her. it's called it's a restaurant. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I just oh. Absolutely what a lifetime rom-com i would <laughs> i would watch the heck out of that <laughs> right and so and so this kind of speaks to i think we're kind of dancing toward the last few episodes um the, the second to last episode is the flashback of we, as we've discussed where we kind of learn like the origin of blind manner but the last episode is half of it is like very intense because this is when danny takes viola like into herself and kind of when Viola is is in Danny's like psyche basically everybody's released from Bly Manor it's like it's no longer haunted and everybody's happy and fine <laughs> and so Danny and Jamie like begin their life and so as part of their outside Bly Manor life like we do see that Owen he, you know he always wanted to be a famous chef but if because of like racism and poverty <laughs> and his mom getting sick like you know he was just this cook at a manor but he's he starts you know he gets to establish his life um but we do see for owen that that you know no matter how long it's been since you know he learned that hannah was dead he always like their love is just like so pure in comparison to the other types of love <laughs> and and you know it's not it's not the main like gothic tragedy um but there's is so tragic even in the little hints that we get at it and it's like hannah has because of her love and like her 
I guess just like pure goodness, <laughs> like has made this impact on Owen. And it's almost like that helps him to live his dreams, right? Because he can, he can live his dreams because of the memory of Hannah and like he can dedicate his dreams to her. And it's like, that's so sad because they're not together. Um, but there is an element of like, this is, this is a pure love. Unlike some of the other loves we've seen with uh, King of Gaslighting. <laughs> Well, it's, um, they are such a dichotomy. By they, I mean Owen and Hannah, in that with Peter and Rebecca, we see them engaged in sexual acts. Um, We see them being all over each other and talking about the future and (laughs) just really living it up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like we've said before, uh, playing in the finery of the, deceased homeowners things and yeah um but on the flip side we have hannah and owen who all their conversations are very polite and respectful um i think the most intimate they get is that conversation by the fire Mm -hmm. and it's it's there's a lot of good old-fashioned pining going on there's a lot of like delicate gentleness between the two of them of just the shared smiles and the looks uh we see them in the kitchen a lot which um in my opinion the kitchen is a really a special place to be uh especially given that owen is the chef it's where he does a lot of his work right and hannah coming in to accompany him while he's working or just to simply be with him when her responsibilities really take her outside of the kitchen um i think it just really speaks to this general want to be with each other but not in like a tear our clothes off kind of way run off to america start a life together (laughs) embezzle Uh, money (laughs) even i think even in that scene when ian or ian when owen is suggesting the hand it's a very it's a gentle suggestion yeah we we could go to paris yeah this could be he doesn't even say like we could get married and open a restaurant he just says you know it, it's a, it's an available to us um and that's a big thing is the us um which is makes it just so much more heartbreaking <laughs> and i can't go oh no it's yeah. happening again <laughs> going back down the the hannah hole as it were um yeah we are in a hannah hole and it is deep <laughs> but i'm wondering if without like without rebecca and peter if that relationship would seem as Mm. as full as it is or if it would seem kind of like misconnections you know yeah that's a good point i i can't quite remember how long owen was employed at the manor before Uh, leaving three years years okay so it's not a long time and if you spend the first year like really getting to know somebody and you're on like a polite basis and considering that owen spent a lot of time out of the house to be with his mom Mm -hmm. You know, it could be reason that it was just very much um, like words unspoken between them. It was just like a, maybe an acknowledgement of the chemistry, but not really anything else. Um, yeah. But then we see it in comparison to Peter and Rebecca, and it's like, whoa, this is much more powerful emotionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> much more uh, poignant, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a good point of like, you know, Owen and Hannah compared to Danny and Jamie, 
maybe not the most <laughs> wouldn't appear to be the most romantic but I think there is also if even if Hannah wasn't dead there there were a lot of barriers to their relationship because Owen is very clear of like once my mom is has passed because she's very sick when she's passed like I'm out of here like Owen was already always like on the go and Hannah like has made it very clear that her identity her being is in Bly Manor and like we talked about in the last episode like accommodating you know Hannah is letting him know that she can't she's not going to pretend that she'd be happy to leave because she's happy at Bly Manor and I'm sure if they weren't ghosts (laughs) she could have figured it out but but you know I think their relationship we get this sense that there was always going to be like the true tragedy is there was always going to be something that would keep them apart. They're very much star-crossed lovers and that, and they are older than Danny and Jamie. Like Danny and Jamie kind of have this, like, we're still young, even though we're in this tragic lesbian romance, like maybe something could change because we're so young. Whereas Hannah and Owen like have lives, have lived, have experience. And there was just, always going to be something that kept them apart and unfortunately the ultimate thing was death i mean okay so we've been dancing around the children also um we i think have been mostly because they're just so creepy i <laughs> don't mean to be but they really are <laughs> they really are even when they're not possessed they just get on my last nerve um but so like as we've mentioned miles is getting possessed by peter and they do I will say they do an, a very interesting thing with Miles where it's it's kind of similar to what we experienced in Hill House where it's like, is it a mental illness or is it a ghost? Because Peter is away at school and like kills a bird, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like snaps a bird's neck. Like it's really gross. Um, and he like, he's having a lot of behavioral stuff. So basically the reason why he's at home with Flora because typically he would be at a boarding school is because his behaviors have been acting up after his parents die so Mm -hmm. it's kind of painted as like he's just maybe a child going through some grieving but then we start to learn that he's being possessed by the king of gaslighting and the most evilest man in the world um and so how much of it is supernatural and how much of it is like you know like a mental health issue Mm -hmm. um but I just found him to be very creepy (laughs) well I think so that that scene of him breaking the bird's neck, I I feel like that was a bit of a red herring. It was like, oh, mm. look at the look at these things that Miles is capable of. Mm-hmm. So later when we see him do worse things, we think, well, it's Miles. Naturally, it's Miles. But yeah. that event was actually preceded by a letter he received from Flora asking him to come home that's right with a super sad little girl drawing and it's yeah (laughs) of her like alone with ghosts (laughs) as i have four older brothers um i am the youngest of five (laughs) um (laughs) the youngest brother is about four years older than i am his name is peter um he's not the king of gaslighting we he is no peter is we call him we'll call him pete pete is not the king of gaslighting and pete and i are very close um even when we are states apart or haven't talked for months on end um i know that if i were to reach out to pete and say i need help Mm. i need you or i miss you 
I know he would reach out to me immediately. And I just, I couldn't help but be touched by that scene about Flora reaching out to her brother and saying, I'm scared and I need you. Yeah. And Peter being like, I need to get suspended like right now. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe necessarily not opting to hurt, not like throwing hands with another classmate. Right. But like what, what's the worst thing I can do? (laughs) Yeah. To not another person. Yeah. Um, Which is still very metal to use a Henry Zabrowski term, but yeah, metal is one way to say it. <laughs> disturbed. It's, it's very mature and it's very intense and it's very aggressive for him. Right. But like you said, he is being influenced by the loss of his parents. Um, he has to go back to school for some reason, even though you think there may be some more like grief counseling or a bereavement leave home. for a nine-year-old. You know, the- <laughs> If the family, yeah, if the family is as loaded as they say they are, you'd think the all pair would come with like a child psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> or one in the same. I don't yeah. know. Maybe that's a lot of work for one person. That is a lot um, of work for one person. Kind of a dual role. <laughs> yeah. Do you also know how to work an espresso machine? Because <laughs> we've got one. <laughs> um, so yeah, but, I just, yeah, I wanted to bring that up because that little, that little letter she sent him really sticks with me. Yeah, right. And you're um, right. We learn that later after because they, they really do set it up as like Miles is like the child from the omen and he's, yeah, he's coming for everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then it's like, it, it's, you know, you, you're right. It's, it's still a very intense behavior, but it's like contextualized. It, it's actually, it, it wasn't the best choice. He probably could have done some other things to get suspended. Yeah. The, <laughs> need him to murder a bird but he is trying to do what he can to not hurt other people but to be there for his sister and we really see that play out in that miles is not capable of hurting other people and i think is a good example of when we're dealing with behaviors in children particularly especially if it's like behaviors that you find maybe distressing or that you would want to stop how do we figure out what's the motivation behind the behaviors because if miles was able to just tell somebody you know, communicate his need of my sister needs me at home because our parents just died and oh my gosh, I shouldn't be at boarding school. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have had to kill the bird, right? And and how many kids get kicked out of class every day, you know, are sent to the principal's office and maybe there was a function behind that behavior that was disrupting that mm-hmm. if we were able to slow down and communicate with these little ones, we'd understand what it was. So that's just another mental health plug. <laughs> of like you know you can see a behavior like I just did I saw that bird killing is very upsetting but contextualized it's actually very very sweet it's so weird but very sweet and we understand the motivation for it it's not just like blood bloodlust yeah he's not experimenting with uh murder or uh animal torture certainly yeah okay I'm gonna pause the recording real quick because I think Spencer's about to go to bed (laughs) Yeah, probably that I heard it in my head. That's okay. Cut that for me, thanks. (laughs) I got you, fam. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, so that's that's Miles, right? And then of course his sister Flora, who Mm -hmm. I just I don't know if it was because they what was her little phrase that she would say? Absolutely splendid. Yeah, because she took it from Rebecca, and it's like I get it. She's sad because her nanny killed herself, and that's like really messed up. But just. (laughs) thank you but there's just something about that 
I was like, you have to stop saying it. Like, it was just really aggravating me. And I'm sure I need to do a little bit work on uh, why that was so upsetting to me. But it, I felt like they made Flora's character maybe a little too earnest. Um, that it's like, this is a five-year-old who's really gone through some of the worst things ever imaginable. Like, she's lost her parents on the same day. And now she's, like, basically watched her nanny be drowned. <laughs> um, we do learn that that Flora is... She's being possessed by Rebecca, right? That's why she's dream hopping. Uh, or yes. she's just be yeah. She when she's being possessed by Rebecca, she's she calls it dream hopping, and she's basically like hopping through these different memories, some from before her parents died. Um, and so Flora is getting really confused and and understandably because she's like five and she doesn't really understand like the time space continuum because none of mm-hmm. us do. Um, but so she she's becoming like very disoriented but she's also starting she's very bright she's like starting to catch on she's met many of the ghosts <laughs> and kind mm-hmm. of seen their origin stories but she basically becomes um like a fixture for viola because she's like about the same age that viola's daughter was and so the one of the like climactic scenes at the end is she's been grabbed by Viola to be carried into the lake and and Danny must save her from from being drowned um also we find out that Flora is not actually her she is her uncle's daughter actually Mm -hmm. her uncle good old absentee uncle was having an affair with Miles's mother Mm -hmm. she got pregnant and and it was flora was the child that was born um and and like her miles's father like kind of finds out about it because the baby is born like way too early he'd been kind of out of the country (laughs) when the date of conception was um but that's part of the reason why the uncle is staying away is because he's he's like too ashamed that flora is his daughter and um throughout this series like someone keeps calling the the house and not answering when they pick up the phone and we find out it's the uncle and he's just calling to hear flora's voice such a sad sack about it i think maybe that's what was frustrating me with flora was it was like okay why are we doing all this about the daddy stuff like just be her daddy now that her other daddy is dead (laughs) (laughs) i agree about flora i think i think they should have i think it would have been better for the story had they leaned more in one way or the other so one way they would have really leaned into the oh yeah the ghosts are my friends yeah um i talked to the guy with the creepy beak all the time which love him. okay love the, the plague doctor. doctor the plague doctor just wants to make sure everybody's okay he yeah. just uh, there's a scene where he appears in the middle of flora's room during a conversation he's just there yeah. literally standing in the middle of her room while there are like three characters conversing and he's just like hey guys just checking in just I just miss my family and sometimes your dynamic is just really heartwarming and you know he's just he's nothing beneath the mask you know that yeah. right he's just a blank face <laughs> anyway that freaked me out um the idea right that like have just, them lean into her like maybe building a relationship with this plague doctor and she's like oh he's my friend <laughs> yeah she has a she is obviously afraid of the lady of the lake um she's very aware of where the lady of the lake is at all times uh she keeps an eye on the dollhouse that the boy with no face uh (laughs) manages um 
But I think if they had really leaned into that, then they could have really upped, um, like she, Flora could have brought us, the audience, more into the supernatural. Yeah. Uh, because we could have seen it through her eyes. Like, oh, this is just stuff that happens at the manor. Uh, and come see it happening at the manor. Or she, they could have sent her the same way they sent Miles, where her experiences have really wisened her. And mm. she is just she is just a five-year-old but she's actually a 35-year-old yeah but I feel like the way she was written is towing that line in a way that doesn't really do her much justice um yeah if that makes sense it's just the times where she does where she says things like um absolutely splendid it just seems silly it just yeah because we see her the rest of the time where she's this solemn little girl with this serious gray down the back of her head. Yeah. And she's, oh no, we don't leave our room after dark. You know? Yeah. It's very sling blade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I, you know, maybe that's just a personal preference of mine, but given how young she was and given how serious Miles already was, it might've been nice to have a little dichotomy between the two yeah Um, just to give us some more to work with and just to give us uh, um, just a little more I think depth yeah in the children yeah I agree because I think there there is some more richness to Miles because there's you know there's just a lot going on (laughs) and Miles is like kind of realizing everything that's going on for him but I I like your idea of like if Flora they could have developed more of her relationships with the ghosts I would love to see just like one long shot of her wandering through all the rooms in the mansion and like in every room she's like oh hey you know faceless janitor oh hey like you know like this guy um yeah even if she was just in the basement like if you couldn't if they if they couldn't find Flora and every time they knew, check the basement. And they found her down there with the creepy collection of dolls. and Muttering maybe, to herself. <laughs> yeah. And that's just where she found solace until Miles arrived back from boarding school. Oh, oh you know, that would have break I'm sure, my heart. <laughs> right? Because I'm sure in his absence, as she described in her letter, she was afraid. Yeah. So did she just live those weeks or months in absolute terror? I'm sure she went about her day because she was a polite little girl who did what <laughs> Hannah asked her to do. Um, and she liked Rebecca, so she probably did what Rebecca asked her to. But I, it just makes sense to me that the character I currently understand as Flora would reach out to the ghosts because she doesn't seem to be afraid mm-hmm. of any of them, excluding the Lady of the Lake, right. naturally. Because she maybe she, gets she, it. she had this like sense. She knew she may have just gotten i hate using the phrase but maybe she's got vibes <laughs> just yeah this i mean the vibes from the lady like predator <laughs> yeah maybe she almost crossed paths her one time and just decided like her energy is different than the rest of them yeah well and, and also the way that the faceless boy like keeps track of her i think yeah. kind of communicates that it's she's a little bit different there's something there's something to her and all the ghosts are afraid of her <laughs> it would have taken the faceless boy to hold up the doll of the representation of a lady at the lake and just shake his head yeah <laughs> i think to communicate to flora she is not one of us yeah and flora um, would be like got it added to the rule book 
because as far as I'm aware, the ghosts that we're introduced to, um, maybe excluding Peter, who I guess doesn't really count at this point, but the ghosts that live, that came about the house between Viola and, let's just say, Danny, mm-hmm. they seem very passive. Mm. Um, they are yeah. merely victims of Viola or... Um, like we see occasionally we see a soldier we see the plague doctor these may just be people throughout history that have been in the house yeah um, so i've read like the soldier may have been a soldier from world war one um right and, the house was used as like a hospital or something yeah, yeah so he probably you know he he passed and he it may not have been through particularly vicious means by at the hands of viola but he passed and now he's just here in this home and he doesn't have ties to this he may have ties to the country but he doesn't have ties to the home or the family within it and he doesn't have this malevolence about him so he's just here yeah and i could see how this vast array of characters if they're not hunting you down and trying to scare you like the creatures of hill house were <laughs> that uh flora might find some comfort in them or just yeah. some company. There were no other children around. I know. That house is full of dead children. <laughs> I mean, was she too young to go to school or was she getting all of her schooling from Rebecca? Because she was not getting socialized at all. No. I think that's why she was so upsetting. Because <laughs> she does not to be a person. <laughs> she was just this polite little girl. Like I said, I think it's the ponytail. I have a daughter who is not five. <laughs> But my daughter Fair. holds this so long enough for me to brush her hair, let alone put it in a thing. Right. Um, and that's what makes her more approachable, is that my daughter is just this feral thing um, <laughs> with yogurt all over her face and her shoes on backwards. She's living a dream. Well, I think if Miles can is an example of what is the function of the behavior that children engage in, I think Flora is a good example of like when we treat children as if they are just tiny adults and need to have responsibilities and be talked to you know like they're grown up and not talked to about imaginary friends and you know baby talk or whatever like that the children don't necessarily benefit from that and I think you and I have had this conversation before but like you know some people pride themselves in like oh I only talk to my children like they're grown-ups it's like well why would you do that they're not (laughs) grown-ups They don't have the same amount of words as you. They don't have the same amount of experiences as you. And if Flora is this only child for miles because they live in the middle of nowhere in this mansion, don't Mm -hmm. you think that it would be nice for her to have an experience? You know, she's having all these new experiences. Don't you think it'd be nice for her to go through that with somebody who also is not, you know, is new to these experiences and not with a bunch Mm -hmm. of adults who are really there just to do a job? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we don't, as far as I recall, we don't really see Flora playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm she's, thinking... She's doing business. <laughs> I don't see... I don't see dolls. I don't see tea sets. I don't see feather boas or playing dress-up. It, it's... it's She's so isolated in her mm-hmm. own childhood. And, you know, even faced with this trauma of losing her parents, she's not being encouraged to play. Um, yeah. I mean, sticking to a routine, I think, is good um, in that it could it can help certain people from developing depression as from my layman's perspective, as I understand it, at least <laughs> the routine is good because it keeps people yeah. grounded in the day to day. 
Um, but she's a kid and she needs the opportunity to be silly and to run around to be crazy. Um, every time the adults see her outside by the lake, because she's, I mean, okay. Yes. I understand she is young and she shouldn't be unsupervised near a vast open body of earth, not open, but a a body of water. With Um, a ghost in it. (laughs) Well, they don't know that yet. Um, Full of of bodies too. (laughs) Or her nanny killed herself. (laughs) Full of corpses. Um, yeah, I guess considering that Rebecca killed her, allegedly killed herself in the pond, um, or in the lake. But it, it's just like, she's not, she's not allowed to be outside. Yeah. She doesn't have places to play. Um, All her they, toys are like old and creepy. The only game, game, quote unquote game we see is hide and seek that they play with Danny on her first night. And mm-hmm. they do that to keep her safe from the lady at the lake. Yeah. Because both of the kids have taken it upon themselves to keep Danny safe. Yes. They are um, parentified children. They are the grown-ups. Yes. Yeah. Which they're going to do in the only way they know how, which is, it's so strange to me that instead of trying to explain it to her, it's like they've had this conversation and they've said, well, she's not going to believe us. She's a grown up. So we're just going to trick her and we're going to do kid things. What is it that yeah. kids do? Crime. Just play a game. <laughs> Kidnapping. Which Lock her in the me. closet. In the scene where... I think one of the weirdest scenes for me, I always thought there was something up with Flora. Uh, there's a scene where Danny is sitting with Flora while Flora is taking a bath. Um, and she's adorable. She's got soap piled on top of her head. Oh, yeah. And she's, she's just bath bubbles everywhere. And she's very obviously having a conversation with somebody over Danny's shoulder. Yes. I don't remember who that was. Was that Rebecca? you know what it might have been rebecca. i think it was rebecca i think most of the times when dan when flora was talking to somebody some ghost it was rebecca because she was the only one who like wasn't faceless <laughs> yeah and i guess she talked to the faceless boy but we always saw him when they were right. interacting um it was crazy though for a second i thought she was talking to danny's danny's uh, ghost ex-fiance yeah yeah um or not even yeah ex-fiance technically yeah. they got engaged yeah um which would have been nuts <laughs> yeah. um, if she just picked up on that, but I digress. Well, I think that's a great transition because I, I think it's time we talk about our main character, Miss mm-hmm. Danielle, <laughs> <laughs> our au pair extraordinaire. Um, I'm obsessed with Danny just because she's played by Victoria Pedrotti, who I think is the only woman in the world that I'm, that I, I just, I live for her. <laughs> she, she is my favorite actress um regardless to say and i think that i'm glad that you were able to come on for this episode because i think as two queer women we can talk about this plot line with danny and with a different perspective perhaps <laughs> than the straights um but so danny like we mentioned is the au pair and she she is haunted by uh what at first just appears to be like a black outline of a man with like glowing eyes but we come to realize that it is in fact, the ghost of her fiance. Um, so it, this is quite the story. So Danny was engaged to this man. They were like high school sweethearts, pretty much. But it was like, they were childhood best friends. And then it just kind of became one of those things where it was like, why don't you just date? What was his name? I, I don't why don't you just date me? <laughs> just date me, bro. Uh, let's see. James. James. Was his, okay, so they were like childhood friends. And it just became a thing of like, well, Danny's not 
dating anyone so she just starts dating james and we come to realize that danny is not attracted to men she's only attracted to women um but it is like deep in the 1980s and that's not accepted um in the culture that she's in and so she just kind of keeps going along with it he proposes and she just says yes because it just seems like the thing to do but we see through these very well acted flashbacks that as she's preparing for the wedding planning she's not into it she's like barely getting through like trying on a dress and there's like this very odd relationship between like her mom and her fiance's mom it's very much of a competition of like who's the best mom which both of us have gone through the process of integrating with (laughs) in-laws it's it's a fodder for (laughs) psychological trauma um but basically oh sorry no his name isn't james it's eddie his name's eddie okay didn't mean to misgender (laughs) the ghost um I mean Eddie's still a man (laughs) anyway Danny finally gets to the realization that she cannot continue in this relationship with him because she just can never love him the way that he loves her so they go out to dinner and she is like it's over like Mm -hmm. I and, and and like basically he's the first person that she tells that she's not attracted to men and it does not go well as she feared so when they're in the car he's like freaking out screaming at her he gets out of the car and as he gets out like a truck runs by and runs him over and it's like this completely like horrible instantaneous death so of course nobody knew that they had broken up because it was the night they broke up so danny had to go through his funeral still pretending that she was his fiance and that she loved him and she's just like absolutely panicking because she can't handle it and this is why she decides to go to the uk because she's like i just have to get away from it and like his family is like being very intense and still wanting her to participate in the family and she's like I can't tell you that that's the last thing I want to do um (laughs) so we basically see that that he is a he's following her around Mm -hmm. like his, his his energy and for a very long time she kind of blames herself for his death and it's like if she hadn't disclosed that she didn't want to be married to him he wouldn't be dead and we know that that's not true that that it's not her fault that he died Uh, it's his fault for being too emotional (laughs) and homophobic (laughs) but that's kind of that's kind of like where when danny gets to bly manor this is the baggage she's bringing with her um and i will say the first time they show because he always shows up in the mirror like behind her the first time they Mm -hmm. show the jump scare of her like closing the mirror and he's (laughs) right there scared me and so danny has this very odd habit of like covering all the mirrors wherever she goes which i thought meant she was a vampire but once again i was wrong <laughs> i yeah with the covering of the mirrors i thought that was i thought she was ashamed of something that she had done mm. as in like i can't look at myself mm. um as in i physically caused something that i can't believe i've done um I felt like, oh, what did you know? Did she murder her last, <laughs> her last child? Pair children, she yeah. appeared, yeah. Um, but that that uh, theory got thrown out the window when uh, she went over her background with uh, Uncle Henry. Um, yeah, I, I think it's one of those situations where I don't think either Danny or Eddie. Mm-hmm. Eddie, yeah. Danny or Eddie could necessarily be blamed because 
she didn't tell him get out of the car she didn't push him out right um but they did take this very they did take this very private conversation into the car and he got to a point where he couldn't he couldn't be in that situation anymore so he went to leave which as i understand might be beneficial for some people who feel if I don't leave this, if I physically don't leave this conversation right now, I'm going to say something potentially awful or something. Sure. I'm going to drop the worst. I could, I might say the worst thing I've ever said to this person because yeah. I am, I am so emotionally stressed out. I am so emotionally tapped out right now. Um, and, and it's just having the wherewithal to remove yourself from the situation before that happens. And that's, I think, what he attempted to do. And then he got absolutely creamed by that passing truck. <laughs> that <laughs> Which... is a much more charitable reading of that character. I was like, Eddie, you're the worst. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could understand it being... You're with this you're this childhood friend of yours. You grow up together. She's not showing maybe... Dr- direct romantic feelings for you um like she's not maybe there's no illusions to like oh maybe we should practice kissing or whatever like there's none of that going on that we know of it's just one of those things where it's like a marriage of convenience it's a marriage of familiarity um it's like well if not you then who because he's not seeing danny date anyone else she's not making big proclamations to like i'm gonna move away to school and you know go start my life elsewhere she seems very content with where she is and what she's doing and it's you know he very may well have been harboring some very intense feelings for her this whole time again to apply things to this this character who died very early on before we even really got to meet him right um and i think that's but oh no go ahead i was just gonna say i think it just might be one of those situations where one person felt much more strongly for the other mm-hmm. and um there were opportunities for Danny to say no right. before she needed to get into any, I mean, even at just the, the question, the question being popped, she could have just said no. Um, but by not refusing the engagement, by continuing on with the planning, uh, by not telling his family that they had actually broken off the engagement that night, she was just digging her own hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. Which then brought in, I believe that, stress manifestation that vision of the last sight she had of her ex-fiance which is really scary <laughs> it is it's also very anime uh, it is very anime the, the hard outline with <laughs> yeah. the, the eyes as so as soon as i saw it i thought what <laughs> it was good though the first time we see him it's i really like knowing that he could pop up anywhere yeah um the mo- and I'm very certain the moment that she sees him in the closet, when the kids lock her in the closet during hide and seek because they're trying to keep her safe from the Lady of the Lake. Yeah. She thinks they're just being little assholes. Because they kind of were. Language. <laughs> they kind of were. When she startles, I'm pretty sure she physically bumps into him. Mm, yeah. He like he you can see him move you can see yeah. his glasses move and that i think that was the worst yeah just that he didn't reach for her he doesn't say anything he doesn't really move he's just there and yeah. just 
the idea that she could physically interact with him like if she were to turn around fast enough then she would actually be able to see him she it's could just, grab him or what yeah it's it's fear on a whole nother level anyway <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say that i think he is such an ambiguous ghost stress reaction whatever <laughs> of like like we do have these ghosts in the house that that are faceless but they still have like the clothes of their time like you like you were saying with the soldier you can figure out what time period the people the ghosts are from because they still have like their bodies are still distinct even if their faces are not whereas eddie is just a silhouette um and there's something about that ambiguity and because we know so little about him because of course the, the story is focused on danny it's, it doesn't need to be focused on eddie i think we can kind of all apply our own lenses to it and so you're you're taking a very charitable <laughs> approach to eddie which i think is in line with who you are as a person whereas i'm like eddie is trash you think that you were just like like eddie just seems to think that he is like he just deserves to have a girlfriend because he's been around a a girl for 15 years and so she's just gonna fall into his lap and he deserves it and there's never any checking in with danny of like do you like me (laughs) it's just like Eddie assumes that because they're friends, they'll start dating, and because they're dating, they'll get married. Um, and I think there's as much complacency in him as there is in her. But for me, I think maybe I react to it from a like a modern lens of like that's very like men's rights, you know, like these these men on on the internet, these these kind of communities that think that they're owed certain things from women. Um, and I think I maybe project that onto Eddie because he is a blank silhouette slate. And we don't know much about him. And that's why I react so strongly to him. But I will say, the actress who plays Danny does such a fantastic job of acting with her eyelids. She's very fluttery in this in this series. And there's a scene where she, you kind of see her realize, like, I got to stop doing this. They're, like, having her get fitted for an engagement party dress. And, I mean, she is just rolling her eyes. <laughs> like, her eyelids are going for And that's when you're like this woman cannot stay in this relationship. She's going to just pass out from having to be a a heterosexual. (laughs) And I I just, all that to say that I think you can put whatever you want onto Eddie. That's part of why he is so different from the other ghosts, partly because he's not necessarily a ghost. He's probably more a a guilt hallucination, Um, but there is a physicality, physicality to him that it's almost like blind manner kind of called him. She went to the worst place that she could go she went to a ghost manor <laughs> yeah of all of the jobs she could have gotten of all the places she could have gone <laughs> she went to the house of ghosts she went to like union station for ghosts and was like <laughs> hey i've got emotional baggage <laughs> as does every yeah she she heard that these children recently lost their parents and she was like that sounds like an uplifting and fun household yeah she's like i just gotta cover all the mirrors and i'm good (laughs) but you know maybe and in that in that scene between her and uncle henry it's uncomfortable because he's 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 dismissed her the moment she walks into the room yeah um so it could be that taking that job is just out of necessity um and she's just able to not necessarily strong arm but she kind of leans into him until Mm-hmm. You know, she finds him at the bar later and she leans into him until he um, acquiesces and gives her the position but she might have been drawn to the trauma in a way mm-hmm. I would think she might think I deserve this mm-hmm. 
This oh, is Danny is very and guilty. I deserve it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, very self punishing. When she sees Eddie um, reflected behind her, she doesn't yell or frown like, yeah. or turn on him. She's she's surprised and then she's sad. And she's and like I resigned. Yeah. I think that that's a good word for it. I think she's just she's just resigned. She's expecting him to be there. Um and when he is there, she says, Oh, of course. Okay. Of course you're here. And because I deserve I deserve this torment. I deserve yeah. to be visited by you. Therefore I deserve to take over with these children and just wallow in this sadness um and just really dive into it yeah Um, and it's almost like like she's committing to being like sexless or loveless as part of her penance too that it's like i'll carry eddie around with me but i won't get into any new relationships um and i will take care of these children until i die (laughs) if i'm not mistaken from the moment jamie this is the gardener Mm. Um, walks mm-hmm. in. Danny is taken. Danny oh, is, yeah. is distracted. Um, but it's one of those things that she just kind of forces it aside. And I, I would say that she focuses on the children, but perhaps it's just the way she's written, or maybe how the actress portrays her. But Danny just feels very reactive to me. Mm. Um, like she's waiting she's just waiting for something to happen so that she can then do something in kind um well i will say when i first watched the series the first few episodes i was like danny's gotta go danny's gotta make a decision (laughs) she's (laughs) she's driving me crazy she was just very you're right it it is like a, a sense like she's waiting for something or she's just like she's she's very breathless she's doing a lot of the eyelid work which at first is a I little like, like a, i got like a shivering chihuahua feel from her for the first yes it's episodes. like a tremble and then there are a few moments where like she's ready to fight peter to the death <laughs> when she <laughs> sees him she's like we need to call the police she's the one who's like the first one to be like we're gonna call uncle henry and you know she's like determined to get this guy back into these kids lives because she's like you're being a weirdo and and she does kind of bring this like americanness to this very like polite english you know country manner that Mm. i I thought made it a little more interesting than just a bunch of people sitting around drinking tea because it very easily could have been that um but i think after we see basically what what happens is, is jamie and and danny begin to kind of dance around this relationship it, it kind of similarly to the way that Owen and Hannah where it's like glances it's it's you know certain conversations and mm-hmm. it it's not very explicit that either one of them is interested in each other until the like the the bonfire scene which is where we everybody kind of confesses all their love and and we learn that every time that Danny starts to get close to Jamie Eddie appears Mm-hmm. And he's like watching her. And so she's been pulling back from Jamie because he's popping up every time they're getting close. And it's like, well, if we conceptualize it as this is just Danny's like guilt hallucination, it's her calling up his memory because of how guilty she feels and not allowing herself to love someone else. But mm-hmm. through the process of her developing this relationship with Jamie, I think Danny really finds herself in, and I think it's, 
it's it's so different to like Rebecca and Peter because Rebecca loses herself in that relationship but Danny Mm -hmm. finds herself in her relationship to to Jamie because this is the first time that Danny gets to make a choice and Mm -hmm. to to really be who she is and and I think it's so beautiful that it's not this like big coming out where she sits everybody down and she's like I'm gay you know like sometimes coming out stories in media are a little over the top and the reality is is that we choose who we come out to and sometimes our coming out is by grabbing the hand of your same-sex partner or you know maybe just casually mentioning in a conversation like your past girlfriends or you know it's, it's sometimes it's just so casual and I love that that that's what this was it, there was no like we need to declare our sexuality to each other. It was just a romantic story. They fell in love with each other the same way that Owen and Hannah were falling in love with each other. Um, and so, and I say that to say that this wasn't a case of like, Danny just jumped into another relationship to define herself, but she really got to be herself in relation to someone and see, yeah, I shouldn't limit myself to, to like penance dating. <laughs> I can I can be who I'm meant to be and I don't think that if she had had that experience, she wouldn't have been able to do the it's you, it's me, it's us and and save Flora. I agree. Um, I'm wondering now if if it's through the process of kind of acknowledging her sexuality mm-hmm. and pursuing a relationship with Jamie, um, opening up to mm-hmm. Jamie about Eddie's appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, that allowed her to really find herself. But if it was also, Jamie as a character feels very different than Danny. She is mm-hmm. outspoken and kind of verbally aggressive. Yeah, Irish. Um, <laughs> she's Irish. <laughs> um, she's she's got a, a she's got a presence to her. It's not it's not a middle finger in your face you know, um, F the man kind of thing. It's just very, I'm here to do my job and don't get in my way while I'm doing my job. Um, not really here for anything else. Right. Like she socializes, but she's not chatty. And there's just, there's a strength to her that I think would have fit well with Danny or did fit well with Danny. Um, and I'm just wondering if Danny maybe picked up on some of that in their relationship early on and maybe jamie even though jamie may not have you know sat her down like you said oh tell me all of your trauma and (laughs) let's go over you know how did your parents take you coming out like there wasn't this big moment between the two of them where jamie said let me carry all of your emotional baggage um she may be just she may have just lent danny strength that Danny then used to really fuel herself into building herself up and moving out of this like Danny from the first three episodes that was really like simpering yeah. and trembling and trembling <laughs> and just not not really a protagonist that I personally could have gotten behind. Um, so it's just I think it's just it's quite interesting to see because later, as we'll learn. Um, the narrator who opens the story of mm-hmm. Blind Manor turns out to be Jamie. Mm-hmm. And we see this woman, this Irish gardener who's been so strong this entire time. We see a moments of weakness in her. Mm-hmm. And then we see final moments with the narrator. 
Um, we see Jamie uh, make a bath or draw a bath. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the hopes of attracting lady of the lake danny and leave her door open and snuggle up in a chair and wait for her arrival as if that's a possibility and that's such a big that's so opposite of how i picture jamie it's just i think it's very like i said i think it's just very vulnerable of her it's very Mm. soft of her to hold on to danny as long as she has considering they were only together for less than 15 years and this is however many years passed i mean yeah danny or excuse me jamie is attending flora's wedding yeah so we're assuming maybe many many years later yeah um she's and and she's a much older woman now yeah she's just holding on she is just still carrying this torch for danny who is very much Mm. no longer a part of this world Mm. Um, which I well, think is but, really sweet. But first, before they show you the tragic ending, they really fluff it up with all this very beautiful, like so. Basically, like we've mentioned, the the climactic, I guess, battle <laughs> at the end is that Viola has grabbed Flora, and her walking is taking her to the lake to drown with her. Mm-hmm. everybody is trying to stop viola but if you can't stop viola that's been established through every episode of this season as you you cannot stop viola mm-hmm. and so danny figures out what she has to do she goes into the lake she's she's grabbing onto flora and as she makes like i guess it's not eye contact because viola doesn't have eyes <laughs> but she repeats the phrase it's you it's me it's us she and she invites viola into her Mm-hmm. And through, I, and I, I personally believe that it's, it's through the strength that Danny has grown, you know, through the course of, of, of the episodes, her time at the manor and her relationship with Jamie, she's kind of able to tamp down Viola. And so mm-hmm. instead of instantly being possessed by Viola, you know, Danny remains in control, but she, when she gets out of the lake, she tells Jamie, like, she's still in me. I, I feel her, I feel her rage. And one day she's going to come back. So they, you see this, like, ultimate victory like she's beaten viola but you're given this caveat of like it's not permanent and then the rest of that episode is basically like all these beautiful scenes of jamie and danny having a life together like they have an apartment together they give each other rings because of course they legally can't get married because of just everything's horrible (laughs) um but they you know they build this beautiful life together Mm -hmm. they every time uh and then they're still kind of like in touch with the children with the people like with owen they're catching up with the children basically keeping an eye on the children that danny made this like sacrifice for mm-hmm. but they're always in waiting of when is viola going to come out and we start to see these weird things happening and eventually it kind of ends up with uh, jamie wakes up and danny is like on top of her strangling her mm-hmm. and and danny's always like dripping wet when this happens because she gets into the bathtub <laughs> <laughs> which i laugh because it just was the only part that was a little bit silly that it's like okay so she's a lady of the lake so she has to get in the bathtub <laughs> like like we get it she's like preparing herself it's very the logistics of it are very weird yeah and you're like what if she wasn't near a bathtub would she just get into the sink and or like in a it, like in a baby bathtub <laughs> it makes more sense to me that like whatever she touched would be wet yeah yeah but, it, but you know nobody asked anyway. us nobody else um and so then ultimately viola wakes back up 
drags Danny to the lake and, and Danny is drowned. And but with her drowning, it's kind of like it also ends Viola. Um it's like it's like a mutual destruction. And so we come to realize that the opening scene with the narrator and all these people at this wedding are actually Owen, the uncle, um, that Miles and Flora and, and Flora's husband, and that Jamie is telling this story because the kids don't know Danny because they were out, they, they were out of their lives because they wanted them to have a normal life. Mm-hmm. And then the last scene of this freaking series is Jamie filling up the every night she basically you find out every night wherever she is she fills up the tub and the sink with water she cracks the door open because there needs to be an invitation and she sits in the chair and watches the door waiting for Danny to walk out of the lake and come back to her and the last scene is a hand settling on her shoulder and you're like yes <laughs> Danny's back <laughs> and it just really that sent me through the roof. I was like sobbing <laughs> the first time I saw that. Maybe I'm just uh, too cynical, but <laughs> honestly, I think that was just a projection. No, it's I mean, it feels like it was just a projection. It just, I like because everybody was yeah. there. It's like the power of all the all of their loves. The children, Owen, the uncle called called Danny back (laughs) she's looking at me like I'm absolutely insane (laughs) it's I have so many questions but um (laughs) Mike Flanagan will take my calls uh (laughs) you know the idea that by sheer force of will Viola existed into this afterlife and then by Danny's sheer force of will Viola no longer existed in mm-hmm. that afterlife um I believe Jamie as the narrator towards the end of that episode mentions that it's because of Danny that no one in Bly Manor would suffer mm, yeah because Danny was not going to walk out of the lake and whole victims essentially right she would be like a benevolent lady of the lake right which brings to question i mean what ultimately happens to viola or you know did it just you know do they coexist in this corpse is there no actual apparition of danny now um or does danny just choose to stay underwater under the lake and to not apparate essentially Mm -hmm. to keep viola uh, down I, you know it's like to keep her anchored in a way yeah like you can't you can't use this form because i'm here and i'm keeping yeah. you tethered to it um i agree that it's sad and i agree <laughs> it's a beautiful model or uh, montage of them yeah getting the u-haul they get a plant together mm. oh. they exchange rings it's adorable yeah, i but- agree it's too much I'm, I'm a little mad that it got delegated to like a like a seven minute montage yeah. but it's, it's a horror series it's not a good times yeah. now one of the one of the biggest criticisms of like this plot line that kind of came out at the time that the show was released was that it leans into this trope called barrier gaze are you familiar mm-hmm. with the barrier gaze 
I am not. I'd love to hear more about it. Okay. So the barrier gaze is a trope that really emerged like early 19th century and, and basically continued into like the 21st century when like it finally was basically legal to be gay. <laughs> and, and barrier gaze is this trope that in its original form served as a way for authors to write about queer characters without there being consequences to their career. So typically what this looked like was in whatever piece of media, usually books at the time, (laughs) although later it did emerge in movies and TV, there would be a a same-sex couple. It was often women, because I guess women just get more tragedy. Same-sex couple, one of the partners would die, and then the the living partner would realize that they were really heterosexual all along and end up with a an opposite sex partner but the bulk of the media was about the same sex relationship and the authors or creators of the content could get away with it by at the end killing off one of them and having one become straight again which is like we know that doesn't work but (laughs) but that that was a way to kind of hide things now in more modern media the barrier gaze trope has taken on um kind of a different flavor and so i i found this article by hulan that talked about um when queer authors use barrier gaze, it's like kind of as a, a commentary on this trope, right? It's like, it's, it's very self-aware that when mm-hmm. a queer author is killing off a queer character, that, that there's this history behind it. Um, but when straight authors do it, sometimes it's like a little ignorant and it, and it kind of leans into, um, you know, the, the, the old tropes of like, like gay people just can't be together. <laughs> they just, like the, all their romances are, are doomed. And so, um, I'm pretty sure Mike Flanagan is a heterosexual man as his wife is in every one of his movies. <laughs> he could be bisexual. We don't know. We, we'll leave that open for Mike. Um, but, you know, I, I think we could easily apply this criticism of, you know, if a heterosexual author or, or a content creator is using this trope, it may be out of ignorance um, or out of maybe a, a malicious um intent and I think that was some of the criticism that people saw now I didn't see it that way but I'm curious now that you know the barrier gaze trope um do you think that that is present in this piece of media so thank you for explaining that I've I think in not so many words I've heard of the trope before I think I've I've witnessed it in articles before Mm. but it's um it's an interesting idea it's almost as if through death can the other partner be redeemed Mm. like it would be too sad the heterosexual writer says to himself (laughs) it would be too sad if they both died yes but if one of them dies it's just tragic enough to really instigate instigate a change in character yeah thus heterosexuality (laughs) a plus b equals c (laughs) do your maths um <laughs> i also wonder if it's just a difficulty writers might might have faced at the time of well how do i imagine these characters living a life mm. um i take these young 20 somethings you know 30 40 years out they're not able to get married they're not going to be able to have children you know it's the 1800s we don't yeah. know any of this information so it's what at that time what kind of life is you know not i'm not not saying this is how i feel but um 
I guess, trying to put myself into the headset, <laughs> the mindset of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for example. <laughs> uh, these two women will live another 40 to 50 years together with no children, with no marriage. Um, mm. They will both have to work low-income jobs. Um, they won't be able to own property. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won't have money to vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they won't have great access to healthcare. What kind of future is that for them? Mm-hmm. So a man needs to be brought into the situation to secure at least one of their futures. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, capital U, unfortunately. Um, anyway, with that said, I think, let's say Jamie were a man mm. and Danny were a woman. I think it still has the same gravitas, mm-hmm. honestly. And I mean, if if male Jamie was telling the story and maybe... You're filling a bathtub every night. <laughs> you're filling a bathtub every night. Um, you know, just in his armchair at the door maybe not curled up but you know man spreading sitting on (laughs) sitting on an armchair watching the door you know even if the roles were reversed i guess if danny was a male Mm. and sacrificed himself uh for flora and i i think i could even see it that way i just i think if you're able to really switch out uh the genders I think that kind of speaks to the necessity of it mm-hmm. or does it make sense for the story? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that entire point makes sense. <laughs> I know what I'm getting at. Right. We're fo- we're following along. Um, okay. Well, I, yeah, I think one in the context of the show, no relationship gets to work out. Right. <laughs> like, like everybody has a tragic relationship. If it was like, Peter and Rebecca got to be happy ghosts forever and Owen and Hannah got to be together and then Jamie and Danny didn't then I would say that probably is more evidence that it is a barrier gaze trope where it's like you know let's just let these women be happy why do they have to have the tragedy actually I have a I have a point for that oh Uncle Henry made himself a part of the lives of Miles and Flora enough so that he was at Flora's wedding okay so it could be conceived that there was some, I wouldn't call it reconciliation, but there was. Oh, I meant like a romantic gap. relationship. Oh, well, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. It was sweet. It was sweet seeing them all dancing together at the wedding. Yes. Um, but no, I think you are correct. If everyone had had an opportunity to be together, but Danny and Jamie were left in that pining flirtation stage Oh, like why are you gay teasing the audience <laughs> right right which i think both of us lived through media in like the early 2000s where that was all we got <laughs> oh excuse me it's gay baiting that is yeah. the phrase i believe i'm looking for i liked whatever else you said <laughs> <laughs> but right right that's one point and, and i think your point of like well you know, and owen and henry are involved in the children's lives and obviously flora is you know getting married like she's able to find love I think kind of shows this idea of like there are other types of love and that what was the most important type of love in this particular story was like the love for these children right that's like Danny did what she did out of love for the children Jamie supported her in that 
Owen, you know, kept an eye on them and, and, and kept that love and that support. Henry got his shit together, <laughs> you know, out of love for the children, which again, in contrast to Hill House, it is a pure and actually protective love, mm-hmm. unlike Olivia's love for her children. And so, you know, unfortunately, the consequences of that love for those children was the destruction of several relationships, of romantic relationships. Um, but yeah, I think in that context, it's 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 not a barrier gaze trope because other people had to bury their partners. <laughs> um, and my second thought was that, you know, it's it it's not the early two thousands anymore. We do have lots of representation of different mm-hmm. kinds of queer relationships. Uh, of relationships that don't end in death um and that i think it would be really weird tonally for this particular piece of content if all of a sudden it ended like super happy <laughs> like yep. you sat through a hunt, like 10 hours of of tragedy and then we were like let's wrap it up because as consumers of flanagan content that's not how it works you don't you know you don't get a mm-hmm. you may get a happy ending for like one character but most people are not getting a happy ending. So of course, Jamie and Danny don't get a happy ending because they're the main freaking characters. <laughs> like, they have to have tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think also it would just totally be di- very different. And we have, this is, a, I think, now the next step of representation. Of It's not just representing queer relationships that are healthy and happy all the time, but representing all types of queer relationships, right? That there, there mm-hmm. are relationships with same-sex people that that are toxic right you could have a peter and a peter instead of a peter and rebecca mm-hmm. like guess they wouldn't both be named peter <laughs> peter and robert right <laughs> i understand where you're coming from yeah. yeah and so it is possible for jamie and and danny to have this very complex relationship that i would say overall was healthy but we do also see represented in that montage that there is conflict about mm-hmm. danny's choice and jamie is constantly pushing her to we need to find a way to fight this and Danny is very resigned to giving into her fate I think she still carries that you know that guilt um Mm -hmm. so it it is more nuanced than just we had to kill off this woman (laughs) so that Jamie could marry a man (laughs) I agree I think um as you said the Mike Flanagan practice is not to leave everyone happy and whole uh and not to spoil um it's i think it i'm i don't mean to get off topic between the concerns towards the lgbtq plus community uh though i will say that i consume a lot of literature and a lot of media and i'm a big proponent of killing off characters (laughs) i just i i think sometimes it takes so much more heavy lifting to really explain why a character survives or how a character would survive. Mm. Like say Danny were to disappear under the water with Viola only to reappear totally fine. And no brain then, damage. <laughs> yeah, she she and Jamie live happily ever after. There's yeah. no way. That's not that doesn't speak true to the brutality that we've seen detailed leading up to this scene. Yeah. This quote unquote scene. Um nor does it really fit in, like you mentioned, with the rest of the story. Um, you know, if I could see an alternative ending for Hannah and Owen being that Owen dies on site and mm-hmm. stays with Hannah. But it's it's just one of those things that doesn't it doesn't quite seem to fit the rest of the story. Yeah. It just doesn't suit it. 
um, especially given what we know about Owen um, and that we know Hannah loves him so much that she knows that she can let him go. Unlike Peter, who doesn't believe in if you love them, let you go, let mm-hmm. them go. But uh, if I love them, uh, walk them into the lake so they can stay with me forever. <laughs> because Peter, Peter might have gained this view from his awful mother that people are things in which to be manipulated and kept um and rebecca just became one of those to him so great great points i think we have again we could again talk about this series for so many more hours but we, we could wrap it up but just like we ended with hill house what would you say is your number one horror point of blind manor i think hannah looking into the well and seeing herself yeah that wordless shock and awe is just it's so strange the i I can't even imagine (laughs) of course um no one can but it's it's so uncomfortable to see it's so realistic in a way i believe the shot is just like a quick camera view it's not like a it's not a gross like gory close-up of like a smushed face or anything it's not like final destination it's very quick and and you can immediately gain a sense of what happened um like you mentioned you connect that view with hannah touching the back of her head Mm -hmm. at times it just it really says a lot in that moment and uh it was uh truly scary (laughs) what about you what what was one of the the biggest horror slash scary moments for you in blind manner you know it it was something that i I don't think we really touched on but uh, because we didn't really talk about the uncle much but his haunting although he does not come to blind manner until the very end um he like basically lives in his office and is an alcoholic but there is a scene where he is confronted by himself, but it's like this like very like mean i don't I don't even know how to describe it, but like it's it's himself, but he's like biting, and mm-hmm. he's basically like locked at his office, fighting himself mm-hmm. over like basically all the decisions he's made and and it, I think it's almost you could say it's like him battling his id because it, the 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 Henry that comes to him is like, well, you could have just like you know had your brother's wife you know you could just you could have just taken everything that you wanted why don't you take what you want and and do what you want and you just sit in here and like drink alcohol and are you know like a sad sack Mm -hmm. um and at at first I was like who's in here with him like it was it was was scary and there was a part of it that was like ooh, the supernatural just like in hill house maybe can exceed past the boundaries and what is scary is the supernatural. Is it a supernatural like visitation of yourself because you're deep down a, <laughs> a whiskey hole? Or is it more scary that it's you like it's coming from your own mind and you've gotten to such a dark place that you've like lost control mm-hmm. of yourself at, to the point where you're hallucinating yourself yelling at you? Um, and I think that also was just such a great way to use the actor who played Henry because he he's such he you know he reoccurs in Flanagan's work so much mm-hmm. and he really is a great actor mm-hmm. um and so it was really cool to watch him play like two versions of the same character um but it was also very dark <laughs> it was I 
yeah, it is, it is too bad we, that we didn't um, touch a little bit more on that particular interaction. Uh, I was reminded quite a bit of, this is kind of a reach, but of Alan Wake and <gasps> Mr. Scratch. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's every, every interaction you have with Mr. Scratch is like the mirror version of Alan Wake. Yeah. Um, they are the same man. They have the same memories but their motivations couldn't be more different. And yes, it's very much like Uncle Henry talking to his id, or maybe he's even talking to his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. It's like talking to the darkest parts of himself, of really facing thoughts that he's probably had before in this moment when he's just alone in the office with that glass of whiskey. Yeah. Um, That's a really good one. I forgot about that. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many. Because, at first you're like, oh, Blind Manor doesn't have as many ghosts as Hill House. It's like less about spooky stuff. And then you're like, no, everything is spooky. <laughs> and also every scene has a ghost in the background. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for this. Thank you again, Becca, for joining me for this little series. Um, and I hope that we can have you back on again, maybe to talk about Midnight Mass. <laughs> I'd love to. Once anything the dust has settled. <laughs> Um, but thank you. And as always, you can join us next week in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.